2: Do you have a favorite TikToker or YouTuber? Someone who makes you laugh or does their own spin on a trend that you immediately share with others? Maybe. They even incorporate their kids into the videos, doing silly dances or saying cute stuff, racking up thousands of comments and millions of views.
3: I think it's important to draw connections between child actors and the child stars of family vlogs. I think those are very similar jobs and that they're both, you know, they're both child entertainment. There's a profit value attached to it. I think it's similar in the sense that you don't always know what goes on behind the scenes.
2: And just like with child actors, these minors are at risk for exploitation. Starting July of this year, Illinois will be the first state to establish protections so that profits made from these type of videos are set aside for that same child as they enter adulthood. I'm your host, Arielle Ravney and today we take a look at the new age of child stars and what it means to grow up on the internet. Get off TikTok and let's get looped in Chicago. On TikTok and YouTube, you can find channels with over 100K subscribers who tune in every day or week to see a family living their day to day. These channels range in showcasing their children, with some using fake names and covering their faces, while some channels embrace the family brand entirely with merchandise their fans can buy. To generate this level of content takes time. That's why a lot of these parent influencers quit their nine to fives to work on their channels full-time. But what does the revenue look like?
3: There was this Credit Karma article that came out about, like, influencer money-making, basically.
2: That's Chris McCarty, college student founder and executive director of the organization Quit Clicking Kids. Their mission is centered around the idea that when influencers use their kids in content, the children are helping to grow the fan base, and thus, the revenue.
3: Um, And so this is something that's specific to YouTube, but if a YouTuber with 1 million subscribers could get their entire audience to watch a new video every week, they could receive about $936,000 annually from YouTube's AdSense program. This is not just home videos, like this is the sole source of income for a lot of families. Um, And I know 1 million seems like a lot, but most influencer accounts have have well over a million followers, especially like the eight, eight passengers, the ace family, it's, it's not a very high threshold when it comes to family influencers. And, and 1 million you know, being at the low end of followers and 936,000 being at the high end of, of dollars just helps illustrate like, this is a source of income, this is an industry, and I think it's disingenuous to say that it isn't.
2: This level of family influencer is who the new Bill is going after, not parents who just share home videos or photos for their loved ones to see. Starting this summer, Parents who include their kids, 16 and under, in lucrative vlogs, will be required to set aside a portion of the proceeds for
4: the children involved.
2: Illinois State Senator David Kaler sponsored the bill. I spoke with him about
4: the details. We looked at Coogan's Law, which was named after Jackie Coogan, a child actor uh, probably 80 years ago, and we did the same thing. So we set it up that if a child, and there's a certain threshold, they have to be in so many episodes and so much time, that if they reach that threshold, then you have to take half of the income that you receive. Say if a child is in 50% of the video and you receive income, well, then at least 25% of that has to be set aside in a trust fund for the child. And uh, what we, we do is we give a, a child once they turn 18 the right of legal recourse so that if they look back and see that the family hasn't set anything aside and they're in Illinois, then they have you know, cause for going after that legally. You know, I I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, It should be done at a federal level, but we had to start where we had to start. Senator Kaler mentioned
2: something significant, Coogan's Law. Children have been performing for audiences since the dawn of entertainment, and their hard earned money historically went to their parents, who had no legal responsibility to save any for them by the time of adulthood. And that's where this law comes in. As state Senator Kaler mentioned, Coogan's Law got its name after the child star, Jackie Coogan. He got his break in movies with Charlie Chaplin in the early 1900s, was the titular role in Oliver Twist, and performed in well over 20 films beyond that as a minor. Jackie is significant because he was also the first child actor to receive brand deals and merchandising based on his image. But by the time he reached adulthood, he saw none of the earnings he made over his lucrative career as a child. Eventually, he sued his mother and former manager for the loss of his income, and thus in 1939, Coogan's Law was born to protect future young stars. It's gone through revisions since the 1930s. But essentially, Coogan's Law today says that all profits made by a child actor are their property. Since they're still minors, the parents have a fiduciary relationship with them, and 15% of earnings automatically go into a trust. So where is the financial protection for children who appear in family vlogs? Shriya Nalamotsu raised this question to local legislators at just 15 years old. Here's State Senator Kaler with some context.
4: She was concerned that there was no child protections in terms of, of uh, number one, whether the, the money went to the family and not to the child, uh, much like uh, with child actors, uh, and you know some of the privacy issues, especially when a child turns 18. So she sent a letter uh, out to some legislators. Uh, she's in my district, so uh, I naturally responded. And uh, my staff brought it to me, and they said, you know, this is this is kind of important. You may, may want to pay attention to it. As we got into this issue, I, I've seen a lot of videos and, and uh, exposés that have kind of undercovered what happens with a lot of these families. I mean, this is a family business. And so they take, and, and if it's an embarrassing moment for their child, uh, all the better because it gets more hits and they get more income. So we looked at what other states were doing. California had uh, toyed around with doing some things. The state of Washington was a little further along. We really kind of modeled our plan after the state of Washington's plan. There's two pieces to it. One is the protection of the child in terms of child labor law. The other is privacy. You know, how do kids, once they're adults, you know, how do they go about removing any unwanted uh, content? So we split the issue in two and we dealt with the child labor piece.
2: The bill from Washington State that Illinois modeled theirs off of was actually drafted with the help from Chris McCarty from Quick Clicking Kids, who we heard from earlier. Chris also brought this issue to the attention of their state senator as just a senior in high school.
3: I cold called and cold emailed Washington state legislators. I outlined the issue that I saw with these family channels going unregulated, uh, namely the loss of privacy that the children faced and also the there's no guarantee of financial compensation for the work that they do. So I said, here's this new policy concept. Here's what I think legislation could look like in this area. Um, And then I was fortunate to connect with Washington State Representative Emily Wicks, who set me up with nonpartisan council staff member Lily Smith. Together, we had about an hour-long conversation just going through the actual legal text. So we, we created that bill draft together.
2: While the bill didn't go far in Washington State, Chris, now a sophomore in college, was able to help Senator Kaler and his team in forming the bill for Illinois.
3: I think that we are very cognizant of our online presence because we were fortunate enough to grow up with a focus on media literacy. Because when we were growing up, social media was already enough of a staple in society that we got taught, or at least some of us got taught from like our parents or from our schools of, here's how you be safe online. Um, Don't share your full name, don't share your birthday, don't share your location, etc, etc, because you never know who else could be online who could be using that information against you. I don't know if maybe that that skipped a generation because it seems like a lot of these parents um, of monetized family social media accounts are sort of sharing all this information that as children, me and my peers were taught never to share. Um, And I, I don't think that for most of them, it stems from any sort of malicious intent. I do think it's a lack of understanding. But I think regardless of the intention, the impact is still there. And that's something that we need to we need to work to educate people about. And that's that's sort of like the advocacy
2: arm of quick clicking kids. At the University of Washington, Chris created the advocacy organization, Quick Clicking Kids. They want financial protections for these kids, as well as a right to privacy. I think that is one of the biggest challenges, is that most
3: legislators will deal with an issue reactively. Um, I know, especially in Washington state, the things that we're trying to legislate around now, like um, the impacts of COVID 19, homelessness, et cetera, they're all things that are a very pressing problem in society right now that we're sort of scrambling to deal with. This legislation really challenges legislators to see things proactively. We want to make sure that there's not a whole generation of children that falls through the cracks while we're like waiting for this to become a more pressing issue than it
2: already is. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from Chris and a pediatric therapist about some of the dangers posed against children involved in online content. Stay tuned.
4: Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution, subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring, listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. you'll be glad you did.
2: Some people perceive children in videos as just kids playing in front of the camera. How could that be a job worthy of pay? Well, let's think back to Coogan's Law. And how not every video posted was done in one take.
3: I think it's important to draw connections between child actors and the child stars of family vlogs. I think it's similar in the sense that you don't always know what goes on behind the scenes. What seems fun and spontaneous on a family vlog could have taken multiple takes to get the right angle or to get the kids to say what they needed to say to have that like cute moment. But one of the key differences that I've heard speaking with like former child actors is that they knew at the end of the day, like they knew when they were on camera and they knew when they could go home and relax and be themselves. And for these new child vlog stars, there is no distinction, right? There is no home to go to at the end of the day because the camera's always there it can always be pulled out at any time so you you have this very blurred line right where like who who is this child online and who are they at home and how do they deal
2: with that but not all vlog content is sweet and wholesome some viral parents post videos of their children having breakdowns getting grounded being embarrassed and more
3: for me, the focus is on loss of privacy. For an example, there was um a mom influencer who recently like shared to her Instagram about like the informations of her child's period, which I think is a breach of like parental trust and and privacy. I think that's something that is very personal that nobody outside of really the child themselves needs to know but the parent was sharing that the the period is so intense that this child like was shaking she was vomiting she blacked out and so she had posted a a picture of her child blacked out on the couch under a blanket and then posted a link to where you could buy a similar blanket for only forty dollars and so that, that level of disconnect between a parent and what they think is acceptable to be sharing about their children online from a privacy perspective, from a safety perspective to like what's,
2: what's okay to monetize. For kids growing up viral on the internet, even if not exposed as insensitively as the way Chris just mentioned, what are the potential psychological effects? I spoke with a licensed social worker and pediatric mental health therapist, Tess Kim. She works with parents, teens, and kids at IFC Counseling in Chicago.
5: It depends on the parent and how they're running their account. So I think there's multiple ways this could go. I would say if the parent is really sharing all the ins and outs of their child's life, that includes like if they are filming the times where the kid is having a hard time. I would say that can really affect a kid's sense of self in a very serious way. So if the parent is posting videos of them disciplining their child, and that's being shared around the internet, that can increase a lot of feelings of shame and embarrassment for that child. So I would say they might have lower self-esteem, they might be afraid to try new things, they might feel like they're bad another thing that i think is also can be harmful is if parents are so focused on their own like instagram or social media aesthetic and having their child fit into that right so if the focus is on this is my aesthetic and this is my box and you're my child so you have to fit into that and if they're putting pressure on that kid in that way that can also really hinder their development of self oftentimes
2: Parents of these channels ask their children if they want to be involved in the content. But I wanted to know if children, not teens, have the
5: developmental capacity to know what they are consenting to. I would say not fully. At that stage of brain development, I do not think that they can fully grasp the like what it really means to be on social media and to have that level of sight on their family and themselves right so I don't necessarily think that that child can fully comprehend or fully give consent and so really I think it's on the parents of like yes those conversations are really important like that's wonderful that those parents are talking to their kids and asking them for permission and at the same time knowing that that child doesn't have that capacity to fully give that consent so like how can they really protect them
2: So what are the healthy ways a parent could approach raising their kid online while not damaging their future?
5: I would encourage all families that if they are sharing their kids' lives online to always keep on having conversations, circling back with their partners, with their kids too, and also always respecting their kids' boundaries. That if their kid is not comfortable with them posting something, respecting that and respecting their privacy and their autonomy in that. And just knowing that, you know, there's a lot that is out of their control. So if they are posting that, they have to have the understanding of that this is a huge, wide world of the internet and things can go in a lot of different ways.
2: And while sharing intimate information online can be damaging on many levels, it would be remiss of me not to mention the other potential threats of sharing your children online. You don't know who is watching. Here's Chris again
3: one of the one of the promising trends that i've seen right this is not all doom and gloom there's a lot of promising things happening a lot more parents now i think following the increased public attention on this issue a lot of parents are having this aha moment and they're they're sharing their children less online or if they do share them they won't share their face they won't use their real name things like that. That makes me happy to see that a lot of parents are sort of now thinking more critically about the things that they're sharing online, especially when it concerns their children. But the side effect to that is that a lot of these channels where the parents are pulling back, they will get commenters who feel entitled to watch their children grow up. There, there will be commenters who are saying, why aren't you posting your children anymore? Why can't we see them? And I think for some people that doesn't immediately raise alarm bells. But I think if you were to extrapolate that into a real-world context where you had a next-door neighbor who was saying similar things, right? Like, oh, I used to be able to watch your children playing from my bedroom window. Why can't I see them anymore? Are you still taking them to the same school? Because I noticed that you're not going the same direction in the mornings. We would feel very different, I think, about that level of investment from someone else in our children's life when you're online and you're commenting on something. There is that artificial distance there. But the thing is, anonymity goes both ways, and you you can't know where that commenter is commenting from because they could be your next-door neighbor. There's always that possibility that that person who's commenting is much closer than you think they are.
2: Threats on the internet exist. But parents aren't necessarily trying to put their kids in harm's way. The era of social media is relatively new. So the modern parent now has to learn something that their parents never had to deal with, online safety.
5: Here's Tess. We don't want to shame anybody, right? And that's including families online that we want to support people because shame is so, so isolating. So I would give that like psychoeducation, right? That's a huge part of therapy. We're providing parents with that information on what stage of development their kid is in. So really, explaining that to them, right. And telling them on the internet, you, when you're sharing anything, you are relinquishing a lot of control over who is seeing it, who is commenting, who's sharing it with others, because it's not just about them at that point. It's about their kids and their lives and their healthy development. So I'd have that conversation and then, you know, check in with them and what is their comfort level? How can they best support their kids? right? And maybe that means having a separate account that's private, where they can show all those moments just to their loved ones and their friends. And if they have a public account, making it more curated and really, really being mindful of the safety of their children.
2: After all, social media is popular for a reason. It can be a community space for people to make friends, share big moments with loved ones, and watch content of other people's lives that can help some feel less alone.
5: Oh yeah, I, I totally don't think it's like a, this is completely wrong sort of thing, right? It's like how the families are doing it. I see a lot of these family vlogs as being educational, as building community and bringing people together, right? And it's really about how are they doing that? And I think the, the best, like family vloggers are the ones who would also be successful if their kids weren't shown on their social media right i think that's like a really good question to ask yourself if that is the situation you're in is like is my social media dependent on my kids is it exploiting they my children or are they just another addition to the content i'm sharing like do is there something else wider
2: this law in Illinois is the first of its kind to tackle this rising new way of income. Though it's the first, Senator Kaler and advocates like Chris are making sure it's not the last.
4: We do have to come back and look at the privacy piece. We're working with some folks out of Washington, D.C. I've even heard that uh, there's some examples of how you know countries in the European Union have, have tried to address this. You know, it's it's a very different issue. How do you remove content once once something is out there? how do you pull it back? And I I don't know. I'm not technically savvy enough to understand all that, but uh, we're going to work with folks that do understand that and see if we can do something.
3: I think it would be great to see something happen federally. I think we're still a ways away from that. But I do think it's important to protect children in in all states across the U.S. I think they need to have equal protections. They need to have the right to be forgotten. They need to have that right to financial compensation. And I'm I'm really pleased to be working with legislators not only in Washington State and Illinois, but also in Pennsylvania and Maryland and and other states. It's really been wonderful to see a state by state like
2: movement start. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looped in Chicago. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Arielle Ravine, edited by Jim Hinke, Cooper Moll, and myself. Craig Schwalb is our station's news director. Myron Kaplan is Managing Producer of National News Podcasts. You can check out our station's very own TikTok at WBBM news Radio 105.9. We'll get you looped in back here in two weeks. See you then.